0: Gospel of Luke, we, in uh, RUF, want you to know uh, what Biblical Christianity is. We think the best way to do that is to go to the Bible and talk about it. So we do this every week, and uh, we've made it to Luke chapter 4. And uh, in some ways we do the same thing sort of every week in a different text. Today, two things slightly different. First, one, tonight, this is very unusual, I'm spinning an old jam. Uh, Meaning, uh, this is a a repeat. I've I've given this message before. Some of you may recognize it. Uh, Most of you won't, but uh, I would like to give credit where credit's due. The person that helped me with this sermon tonight was me. And uh, so it's very important to cite my sources. And uh, this is an old one, and uh, it's not that old. Some of you will probably remember it, but it's on this text. I've, I've adapted it some. Secondly, also slightly different tonight. We do this occasionally, maybe about once a month. Uh, more when we're talking about sex and relationships like last year. But uh, we're going to do Q&A afterwards. Uh, You're excited about that, I see. So the way this works is uh, don't text me, actually. Text Callie's number because I'm going to ignore it. Um, text Callie's number, if you have a question, while I'm speaking about anything that I say or anything that uh, comes to mind from this text, and we will do our best afterwards to address them. We don't promise that we will address them. We don't promise we'll address them well, um, but we promise we'll try. Okay? We uh, And Ariel, if we want to take your question seriously, this is one of the ways we do that. Alright, I'm going to skip right past the intro to the text and just jump right in. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Follow along up there. A lot of things going on in this text. Pretty action-packed. Starting in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Yet only, uh, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons came out, crying, You are the Son of God. And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we thank you for this word, and pray you'd show us great things in your law. Show us especially, Lord Jesus, uh, your good and great nature. And grant us a deeper faith in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. A friend of mine uh, turned me on to this story. It's an account uh, by a man who was uh, sitting in a jazz club a few years ago. He uh, was sitting in a jazz club. There was a murmur murmur among the crowd that uh, Wynton Marsalis was playing. And uh, he, from where he was sitting, he, he really could find no evidence of it. But the fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, and it was now clear that this was indeed Wynton Marsalis. didn't look like Wynton Marsalis, and didn't what he expected like any what he expected them to look like anyway. But the song was a ballad called "I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You," and uh, he played it unaccompanied. The song was written by Victor Young. It was a film uh, score and uh, for a 1930s romance movie. Uh, the, the piece is known to bring out the sadness in any scene. So that's my kind of jam. And, uh, and in this particular night, Marsalis seemed uh, deeply attuned to the melancholy of the song. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking the words through his trumpet. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. And as he was reaching the climax of the song, he, he played the final phrase, which is the title of the song, in declarative notes, each note lingering just a little bit longer in the air. I don't stand a ghost of a and at the moment, the highest climax, Well, the, the place is utterly raptured by his performance, a cell phone goes off. And not just any cell phone, one of those particularly annoying sing song, dingle ding song uh, tunes. And people started giggling and reaching for their drinks. And the moment unraveled, the performance unraveled. And this particular writer who was there that night wrote on a piece of paper, Magic Ruined. Magic Ruined. Uh, A pastor, theologian that I was reading a couple years ago, basically said that we can understand the world the way it was created, like an orchestra. That God made the world and us, humanity, who were called to rule it, incredibly complex and diverse and beautifully assembled, and we were meant to play, and we were meant to play well. And just like an orchestra, we were meant to play in two ways. By, by the notes, by the score that were given to us. God's plan that tells us what we're supposed to do. And also by the conductor, who tells us when we're supposed to play. But the story of the Bible is that we were given a score, and we had a conductor, and we decided that we wanted to play our own way. And so we pretty much tore up the score and turned our back on the conductor, and we've been playing our own tune ever since. And by and large, what that means is each one of us plays a tune in life that is at times enjoyable, and at times highly frustrating. And then when you look at the whole world in in the colossal conundrum of life and the clamor of noise of 7 billion people playing their own tune, out of tune, out of harmony... It's, it's no surprise that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Discordant, lacking harmony, magic ruined. Personally, we're regularly frustrated. We know that our lives are not the way they're supposed to be. And we look at the broader world, we know that the world is not supposed to be this way. So, uh, if you're a hopeful sort, then you wonder, like, what can fix this? And to stay with the orchestra illustration, we need a conductor. We need a conductor if we're ever to play again the way we're supposed to. And we need a score. We need a conductor that will actually, like, make us play the score. But who is that? Who can restore order in our life? Who can, in the world, who can make us live and play the way we're supposed to? And in this text, we really see that King Jesus has come to do that. He's come to restore order. So if you're a note taker tonight, this is a very simple order. or outline His agenda and the kingdom's advancement. So, uh, King Jesus has an agenda. And if you will, in the election season, you can try this on for size. Uh, he has an agenda, and we're going to see his first 100 days in office. That's what we see today. And uh, in verses 14 and following, we see Jesus who's returned from his period of trial. That's what happened last week. And uh, the news of him has, is proceeding him already. And he comes back to his hometown... And he's asked to read and speak uh, as a guest, and that's sort of normal. Actually, if you're any kind of like pastor type, that happens all the time. Now, anywhere I go, I have to be very careful and covert and hide, or someone will ask me to do something. Um, but, but Jesus has this reputation, and so when he goes back to the synagogue, they ask him, like, hey, you want to read? And they, they give him the text of Isaiah. That's actually sort of normal. And he reads it. That's sort of normal. And then he sits down and people expect him to to say something, to explain it. And that's also culturally normal. And then Jesus in verse 21 says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, sort of indirectly, I am the servant of the Lord that this text is talking about. That's... That's me on the scroll. He's talking about me. That's not normal. Not normal. It's not what normally happens in synagogue. It's a tremendous claim. And what Jesus begins to do now is unfold his agenda as the king. He's the promised Son of God, the king to come, the Messiah. In this text, Isaiah 1, is, if you will, his agenda. But before he gets into the details of what he wants to do, he offers his credentials. It it comes in the text. You you can see in verse 18, he uh, is one who's divinely selected. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. God has anointed me. Uh, That means God has specifically chosen this one, Jesus, to be the Christ, to be the King. Uh, He was not universally elected, democratically elected. He was divinely selected by God to be the king. But he's well equipped as well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah 61 says. And Jesus is saying, this is true of me. If you go back to chapter 3, we see this happen last week. Jesus, who is God's Son, receives the baptism of the Spirit when he's baptized. And that means that Jesus is uniquely equipped to carry out the office of a king. He is unlike anyone else. He's going to make some grand promises, even grandiose promises, like the ones where you scratch your head and say, yeah, let's see you try and do that. He can do it, because He's not like everyone else. He has the Spirit without measure. He's powerfully equipped. He's not like us. And something of this shines through. Something of it. Not fully. The people don't quite get it. Isn't this Joseph's son? But it says they're they're marveling at him. At what he has to say, they're amazed, and then he gets into the details of his agenda. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And Jesus begins to unravel, if you will, or, or show his his plan and this proclamation of good news. The word good news is what we mean when we say the word gospel. It just means good news. It, it, it looks like this. It looks like release of the captives or liberty. Recovery of sight to the blind, setting free those who are oppressed. That's what he says up there. This is an amazing reversal. All the bad things fixed, all the broken things mended, all the oppressed things set free. It sounds amazing. It's good, you know. All the bad things undone, and uh, it it is good. But, you know, but I can imagine someone there, someone there like me, like wondering, like. Well, uh, what exactly do you mean? I mean, do you mean like really recovery of sight to the blind? Are you like setting up LASIK surgeries all over the hillside? What, what are you going to do? Are you really going to like set prisoners free? Are we talking about a revolution? Are we pulling bars off of doors, off of chain, off of jail cells? What are we doing? Is this a metaphorical spiritual? Is this physical? What exactly do you mean... What exactly are you trying to do? There's a bit of ambiguity here. Is this just all words, actually? Is this just PR spin? Grand promises to boost his popularity. Well, if it's that, then he quickly ruins it all. Because he goes from being marveled at and popular and everyone's excited about him to his own town, just eight verses later, ready to throw him off a cliff. Do you notice that when we read... Like in verse twenty-two, they're like, "This is amazing! This guy's is amazing! Isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't we know him like a long time ago? He's a carpenter down the street. That's him!" And then, like eight verses later, they're so filled with wrath—the words "wrath." It's not just anger; like they want to tear him apart. They want to throw him off a cliff. Like that's not metaphorical. They, they literally want to throw him off a cliff. What happened? Why are they so mad? He, he offends his audience. And uh, it's really interesting what, what pushes them off the cliff that want to push him off a cliff. Um, and, and you really get it in verse 23. Jesus basically says, this is my plan, this is my agenda, to bring good news to the world. And they're like, that sounds great. And Jesus basically says, let me, let me make it clear, to the world. They're like, okay. And Jesus says, listen, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell me, Hey, Jesus, we heard about all this cool stuff you're doing out there. Do it here. Do those things here. And Jesus is pointing out to them that they, by nature, are possessive. They're selective. And to make it clearer, Jesus gives them a history lesson. Hey, guys, remember in the Old Testament, there was this long period where people were were starving. They were thirsty. There was a famine. And God decided to act. He sent someone to a Gentile widow, an outsider way out there, one of your enemies. Do you remember that? And he says, you remember that there were like lepers everywhere? There still are. And God could have healed any one of them. And he decided instead to heal this Gentile named Naaman, the Syrian. Basically what Jesus is saying is God has always intended to bring blessing to the world. And historically you haven't liked that. And they basically say, you're right. Now we want to kill you. Now, if that seems a little irrational to you or illogical, I want to just basically share another story. Really interesting. There's this book in the Bible called Jonah. You might know it from VeggieTales. So Jonah was a missionary, not a mercenary. People get those mixed up sometimes. Um, Mercenaries are supposed to kill people. Uh, I, I seriously had a kid once, like a juvenile delinquent, think I was the coolest guy ever. It didn't make any sense at all. I'm like, why do you think I'm so... He thought I was going to be a mercenary. I was like, no, I'm trying to be a missionary. He thought I was going to be a mercenary. I was like, no, I think we we'll got that wrong. So uh, Jonah was supposed to be a missionary. supposed to go tell the good news to this big city called Nineveh. And the, and the good news was this. Hey, God uh, is not impressed by the fact that you're a big city. Instead, he's really angry at you because you've spurned him, you treat the poor terribly, and basically he's going to crush you. You're on notice. That's the good news. The good news is God actually cared to speak to them and warned them. And uh, Jonah doesn't want to go at all. And he decides not to, and so the book is spent like chasing Jonah around in the different places as he runs away from God, including a whale's uh, inner, inner innards. And um, eventually, he does end up in Nineveh, and he does the most unenthusiastic, like, good news presentation ever. Like, hey, there's a God. Like, my God, Yahweh. You might not know him, but he's the real God, and he's really mad at you. And yeah, you're toast. See ya. Like. That's pretty much it. Like, he really doesn't care about them at all. And then something really funny happens. End of chapter 3, the Ninevites hear this message, and they take it to heart. They genuinely change. The text calls it repenting. They, they turn from their ways, and they turn to God and mourned. And then chapter 4. This is what I want you to listen to. All that other stuff wasn't important, but it was. Chapter 4 begins with Jonah angry angry, angry, angry. And God comes to him and says, why are you angry? And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were a God like this. A God that delights in mercy, who's rich in mercy and compassion, delighting in steadfast love. I want to die. I'm not making this up. You can go read it. Jonah 4, 2 and 3. He's a missionary. And he basically is saying, I hate those people. I hate them so much, I want them all to die. And I knew you were a forgiving God. And it makes me so angry I could die. Okay, now if the Bible is going to be that honest about a missionary's heart, I think it would be good for us to be honest about the fact that we can be like that as well. You see, it's not just Old Testament prophets or even like people in Nazareth who have a problem with being selective. It's a human problem. All of us have a short list of people that are in and out. Cool, not cool. Smart, not smart. Pretty, pretty, not pretty. Um, Good, not good. Promising, hopeless. Off God's radar, no chance. You're toast. We've got people we think that are just beyond reach. They're on your short list. We all have them. Basically, Jonah's was like a couple hundred thousand people, actually. And that's the problem in, in Nazareth. They're basically saying, we're the people, and they don't deserve the good things God has to bring. The good things that God has to bring is for us, not the people out there. It's for us, not for them. And what the Bible basically says over and over is, well, you're right. You're right. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it at all. But you're wrong. You don't deserve it either. No one deserves it. No one deserves the good things God has to bring. No one deserves the good news of mercy. No one deserves the good news of forgiveness and grace. That's what grace is. It's undeserved. You don't everyone's out. There is no in or out. We're all out of bounds. That's the good and bad news. Uh, Sometimes it's better to tell you things before you find them on your own. So a couple of years ago, some intrepid student that I've never met, not from here, another school, wrote an article about RUF for like a denominational magazine. And in that magazine, it was a very short little article. You can go find this. Now you will for sure. Uh, he basically said that RUF at his campus was the ministry for drunks and, uh, and and people that cuss a lot. And as you might imagine, that did not go over with all the gray hairs of my denomination. Um, or his campus pastor. <laughs> so his campus pastor sat down and said, like, why in the world would you say that? And the short of it is that this well-meaning student realized, probably at something like a fall conference which some of you are about to go to, not everyone in this ministry is like me. There are a bunch of people here that cuss and sleep around and drink too much, and I don't like it. And the other ministries aren't like this necessarily. So RUF must be the place where we don't take those things very seriously. And the campus pastor had to sit down and say to him, uh, no, we take those things seriously. But listen, there's a reason why they're like that. Why is that? Well, for one, like, none of those people are Christians. Like, not because they do those things. They just, I just know them. I've talked to them, and they're not. You see, RUF is a ministry for the world. We're not a collection of super-spiritual saints who never have problems. We don't exist just for ourselves. Again, we're not asking anything of you. We want to be for everyone. In other words, we want to do what this text says. It's not us against them. We're all on the outside. And we want our, our group to look like the campus, because we believe the message of grace is for all of us. And that people need to hear it. So, that's Jesus' agenda. To bring this good news to bear in a world where people can't hear it and are busy trying to shut other people out. And uh, he's going to bring it to bear. Now, the question is uh, can he actually do it? Can he actually accomplish his agenda? What will it look like in action? And we see in verses 31 and following the kingdom advance, okay? And it advances powerfully. It advances powerfully by his word. You see it in verse 31 and following. leaves Nazareth and he goes out and he starts teaching again. He does this all the time. It's really interesting. If you're, if you're the king and you're the son of God and you have power, and if you go back and look at this text, there's like power and authority everywhere. You, you, you could probably do like things a lot more directly. You could just basically issue an edict. like You've got 72 hours to get your stuff straight, and then there will be hell to pay. He could do that. It was within his rights. Instead, he decides to do this really humble thing where he goes to a synagogue every Sabbath and, and proclaims good news. There's a God in heaven who is righteous and holy, and he's willing to forgive sins if you come and embrace his son. That's a really humble means of bringing his kingdom to bear. And that's what Jesus does all the time. And that sounds really humble, and it is really humble. I do it every week. I'm like, I don't know if anything's going on out there. Just throwing out words. Are they landing? I don't know. And um that's what Jesus is doing over and over and over. But his words have authority. When he preaches, things happen. And at the end of this text, you may have noticed it when we read it, after he's you know healed everyone in the town and cast out a demon and fixed up mom-in-law, basically he has this like. Really devoted crowd of people. If he wanted to say, hey, let's just shop, shop right here, we'll start like a university here, and a high school, and uh, maybe get one of those like local public television things going. Uh, he could have set up his own little mini kingdom right there in rural Galilee, and people would have ate it up. They would have. Like, okay, we got the little Jesus club here. And they would have done the same thing. Like, these are the insiders, those are the outsiders. If you want to be an insider, come to us. That is not. Not what Jesus did. He didn't. They they had to look for Him. Where are you? I must, verses 42 to 44, I must go to those other towns and preach the good news. This is how He brings His kingdom to bear. This is how Jesus, Son of God, plans to change the world. To share a message of good news with the world. So, if you want to know why a 41-year-old man would show up every Thursday to do this. Or, why in RUF, we take God's Word seriously enough that that same 41-year-old man would show up and preach for about 30 minutes every Thursday night. It's because of this. If the Son of God said the way that God brings change to the world and change to lives is through the Word of God, then I think that's what we're going to do. Then do it with fireworks. Fireworks. Then do it with holy water. Then do it with uh, magic tricks. He shared a message of good news that God forgives sins and turns broken things upside down. He did it then. We'll do it now. That's why our does what we do in regards to God's word, and it works. People are changed. The kingdom grows. Uh, not just words, but also works. You, you see that here uh, in verses 33 and 36. This account of the demon-possessed man. At some other point, I'll go into a longer explanation about, Hey, why why are there like doubles and bad stuff everywhere in the Bible? But I don't see it. I'd love to talk about that, but I'm not going to do it tonight. But I will do it soon. But really interesting here, a couple, a couple things I'd like to point out to you, is that, uh, again, just as Jesus speaks with authority and power, He acts with authority and power. And there's almost uh, a subtle clue here that we have sort of a, a cosmic battle of good and evil going on here. In verse 34, this, this uh, demon, I don't know how to call him, this really bad guy, um, asks Jesus, have you come to destroy us? see that? Verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? Okay, two ways to interpret it, that, that I know of, really. One, have you come to destroy us, being me and the other bad demon-like thingies, right? Or two, what could be the other us? Me and this dude. Me and the guy right now. Me and this piece of meat that I own. That us. Have you come to destroy us? And if that's the case, then this is like a challenge. It really is. Basically, Jesus, uh, I know who you are. And I know you're powerful. And if you want to do battle right now, cool. Are you going to destroy both of us? Because I'm taking this guy with me. So last week, I basically uh, illustrated an entire sermon with, with uh, Dark Knight references, about which I'm somewhat proud. And um, after that movie, it seems that Bruce Wayne went into hiding. This is the chronology, okay? And then, like, these really bad guys came from space, and there was this giant battle. It happened in this other movie called Man of Steel, Okay, and stick with me. During Man of Steel, basically, this other guy, also wearing, like, tights, um, named Superman, had this epic battle with this dude named Zod, in which, as you might expect from two, like, foreign, huge powers, they basically destroyed every single thing on Earth. Have you, have you seen the movie? Like, have you seen the movie? Like, I'm not saying you should. It's one of those deals there where, like, Hey, you know, there were two like huge galactic superpowers. They probably would pretty much destroy everything. You sort of watch it and you wonder, like, how did anyone live? And uh, that is actually why The Dark Knight decides that there needs to be another movie where I come back to destroy Superman. That's the way it worked, by the way, that last movie that no one went to see. Basically, Batman was in hiding watching Superman and Zod destroy the whole world and said, like, Man, this guy's dangerous. I need to take him down. So, shortly... Uh, this has a point. Um, just like there was unparalleled collateral damage in that movie. Seriously, like, they didn't mean to, like, destroy the whole world, but they pretty much did. This, this bad guy is telling to Jesus, hey, if we do battle, there's going to be damage. People are going to get hurt. I'm taking this guy with me. And I, what, what happens here in verse 35 is really interesting. Jesus defeats. Overcomes this one. And the text makes a note to point it out. Having done him no harm. You see that? Having done him no harm. In other words, Jesus is great in power. More powerful than anything else that we've encountered thus far. And yet, careful, tender, compassionate, and uh, he, he, as he pushes back darkness and evil, as he pushes back brokenness, we can see his gentleness and compassion. He, he does battle here and then goes and heals someone's mother-in-law. Like that's a weird day at the office, right? What'd you do today? I beat back evil. Oh, let me help. Let me help mom-in-law. Like that's Jesus, all-powerful. Gentle, humble, compassionate, and then when it's time, the entire town brings everyone that's sick. And Luke makes a point of saying he healed them all, touching all of them. He laid, verse forty laid his hands on every one of them. That's really interesting. I, I have every reason to think he could have said like, "Whoa, look at all those people out there out the window. It's been a long day at the office. Hey, y'all are good." Done. Everybody go home. Like, everyone's instantly healed. Like, why couldn't he have done that? Really, why couldn't he have? And instead, he takes the time to address and heal each one of them individually. Great power, great care, and gentleness. That's the kind of king we have. And uh, so, a quick question here What does Jesus care about? What's his agenda about? Spiritual or physical? Or both? We see in His kingdom that He cares about everything. He cares about human hearts. He cares about hatred. He cares about love. He cares about mercy. He cares about forgiveness. He cares about those who are oppressed by evil. He cares about those who are oppressed by illness. He cares about all of it. And He's coming to restore it all. And that should impact the way that you think about how He cares about you. So, after like eight years of working with college students and i 'm not to say i 'm not saying that you 're like all the other college students i 've ever worked with, but this is sort of what i 've got that over over time i 've learned that you know just like other human beings you 're selective about the kind of people you think God works in. He works in good people like us, not those people out there, and you have a list of bad people that god can 't work in, and you 're wrong, just like the Nazarenes and just like me just like Jonah, but we're also selective about the things that we want God to care for. We as individuals are really selective about the things in our lives that we want God to care for. We want God to care about the things we care about, like our grades, and our relationships with the opposite gender, and the drama in our lives, and the fact that we're tired, and the fact that I don't know what my job is, and the fact... We want to care about, and I want my roommate to die and go away. We want God to be concerned about well maybe not. That's not based on any particular conversations I've had with any of you that I would say that. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, in our hearts, we can be self-absorbed, unloving, uncharitable, like mean, unfaithful. And we don't even think about it. And we don't necessarily want God to care about those things or fix them. And yet Jesus came to live and die for those things. And at the same time, we can have individually deep wounds. Areas of brokenness in our lives. From abuse, from abandonment, from family history, physical and mental illness. And over the years, for the most part, I've seen lots of students act like it's not a big deal. It's okay. I'm going to be just fine. It's not okay. You're broken. We all are, but you're broken. We all have some area of brokenness. Not a single one of us is the person we're supposed to be. And Jesus came to fix that too. It, It might take until His kingdom comes in full, until it's fixed. But He came to fix that too. And I want you to be honest about that. I want you to be honest about all the ugly stuff in your heart, but also to be honest about all the broken things in your life, because He came to fix that. One of the really hard things about this text, friends, is that Jesus comes and and promises this good news to the world, but but He puts it in some really interesting terms to the poor, to the oppressed, to the imprisoned, to the blind. In other words, to needy people, right? None of us think we're particularly needy. None of us really want to admit that we need anything. And until we realize that we're the kind of people that think, I'm in, they're out, and realize, wait, I'm a a judgmental, self-righteous jerk. Or, I've got real areas of brokenness in my life where I need nothing less than the God of the universe to come and fix me because nothing else will. Until we own that... We're not going to want what he has to offer. We're not going to hear his song. So we've seen his agenda. We've seen the kingdom advance. And uh, let's go back real quick to that New York City jazz club. So the magic's been ruined. And a cell phone offender scoots off into the hall, answering the phone having a business conversation. The guy was just clueless, actually. And um, everyone's talking. And Marsalis, meanwhile, is just frozen at the mic, holding his trumpet, uh, not moving. And, uh, and then he played the silly cell phone melody, note for note. People began to giggle a little bit, and then he played it again, and again, and then he began to improvise it. And then the audience slowly came back and began to pay attention. Three or four minutes, he had resolved the improvisation. You change the keys once or twice. And you throttle down the tempo to a ballad to end up, like no one else in the world can do this, by the way, to end up exactly where he was. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And the room erupted in applause. Like no one could do what he just did with a trumpet. Like it's amazing to take a, a, a moment ruined and to take you right back to it magic restored. The story of the Bible is that it was all once magical, the way things were supposed to be, and we've just had to do it our own way. And we're playing our loud, busy tunes, acting like everything's alright. But, but Jesus has come, and He's playing a completely different tune, and he's, he's yelling to us. Really, He is yelling to us. Calm down. Stop playing for just a minute listen to me. I have a good news song for you to hear. It's for the whole world. When you hear it, you're going to love it. You're going to want to listen to it over and over. You're actually going to want to play it. I will teach you how to play it. When you learn how to play my tune, my song, it'll change your life. It'll change the whole world. Let's pray together. Our good Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness.